Bat fans, David Oakes here and welcome to the second instalment of my interview with bat expert and all-round good egg, Professor Kate Jones. If you have not already listened to the first part, you may not be aware that we have bats to thank for tequila, that all mammals were originally nocturnal, and that Harrison Ford is welcome to pop into the Centre for Biodiversity and Environmental Research at UCL anytime, anytime, Harrison, and you will get the very warmest of welcomes. If you have already listened to part one, then you'll know that rain stopped play. But we will jump straight back into where we left off with megabats and microbats, and then on into the arms race between bats and moths, how the US attempted to make army bats, and ultimately, you'll learn what I have on my bathroom walls. So, without further ado, this is more Trees A Crowd, and this is more Professor Kate Jones. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh So what's the, what's the argument about megabats and microbats and why are people so... Uh, well, bat taxonomy uh, has always been a bit controversial. So at the very beginning, people did recognise that there were these two groups, megabats and microbats, so... Megabats, these big bats with dog-like faces, mm-hmm. and fruit, fruit bats, the ones that you get in the old world. And then um, these microbats, tiny ones that are found everywhere. But there was a whole bunch of research on this in the 80s. Okay. And um, someone called Jack Pettigrew, from, who's, who's in Australia, decided that a lot of the brain wiring and brain structure and the eye kind of wiring, anatomical features of the brain and the eyes, was very similar to primates mm-hmm. for, um, for megabats. So megabats, megabats looked like, some of the anatomical structures looked like primates, and the microbats looked really different. So he proposed that megabats were actually primates. But they're not. Don't, don't, I'm like, you know, I'm just telling the story here. <laughs> don't cut to the uh, ending. <laughs> so, That's Megabat- a huge jump to make, though, isn't it? Well, there were some uh, some evidence, anatomical evidence, that this was true. And for a while, that was a lot of... You can see it in the literature, like, megabats are not primates, you know, just shouting each other sure. in the literature. And then uh, this is before the dawn of, of easy DNA sequencing. And so... So uh, there was a massive fight to get megabats in bats, let alone related to microbats. So anyway, some DNA, you know, um, study early DNA studies put them firmly within microbats. And then the story unfolds that actually they're not just within bats, but they're so closely within bats. They're not a separate group at all. So there is no megabat and microbat. They're all bats. So microbat, megabat is this group of tropidae, these old world fruit bats. They're like flying nested, foxes and flying like foxes. They're nested within the rest of the microbats. So there's no microbats and megabats because that they're all nested within each other. And the only reason they're different is just because of environmental differences wherever they've evolved. Well, I don't know why they're different. They've lost echolocation. So, like, they, they're related to horseshoe bats, the ones which carry mm-hmm. coronavirus, probably. So they're related to those ones. They're the most, the ne- the most um, closely related 
or in family is these rhinolophid bats, these leaf nose bats. So they're in a family next door to these other microbats within a clade of other microbats. So there's no such thing as microbats really because it it's spread across the whole tree. Sure. So there are the, so megabats have got some really weird things going on in the fact that they can't echolocate. They've lost echolocation mm -hmm. or that it it was gained in these other microbat species a couple of times separately. So it's either been lost in megabats or it's been gained on a number of occasions in these other microbat families. Okay. So it's more parsimonious probably to say that megabats lost the lost ability to echolocate. And also, you know, they've focused solely on um, fruit eating and, and pollen. And there are some microbats that have done that, but they, they're usually in the in the new world. In general, are these larger megabats, which we shouldn't call megabats, which are just bats, but particularly big non-echolocating bats, do we think they've evolved to be particularly big non-echolocating bats because they feed on fruit, because they get a higher energy food stuff? Yeah, I think that, that could be part of the reason. Um, and migration as well, because they migrate hundreds of kilometers that was going to be one of my questions is do bats migrate but yes yeah they do um but but also the these phylostomid bats which are that centurio one that was one of those and the tent making bats are phylostomids they're another group of fruit eating bats and they're they are slightly bigger but they're not like massive like sure. the, the big fruit bats um so i don't know quite why the mega bats are so big but they are i i watched some hanging from trees eating screw pine in the Maldives. And I was being hit upon that thing. I'm on one of my many adventures. Um, I, I was struck by the whole thing about like, you can be on islands or atolls or whatever that don't have any mammals on, but and yet you've still got these visiting um, winged mammals and the occasional visiting um, aquatic mammals. Well, they're really important in those situations because they're the only species which can you know, often get there, and mm -hmm. so they're really important keystone pollinators, or the first things to restore a forest for, from after deforestation or okay. a, a, a catastrophe happening, like a hurricane or something. Because you know they're the only some sometimes they're the only mammal on what some of these more um, uh, remote know, so, islands. Yeah. So they're really important in terms of forest regeneration and keystone species. In the way that there are firms, companies that provide hives of bees to pollinate a crop. Are there firms that have whole colonies of bats that they can release to help <laughs> a forest recover after deforestation? I mean, do you think that might be a, an industry down the line? Like... <laughs> I know, I haven't heard of that, but I know that there are some people that use bats for one of the other things that they provide to us, which is insect regulation. So okay. eating insects is, is one of the biggest things that, that they do biggest uh, diets which bats have and um, there are lots of economic studies which have shown that you know billions of pounds billions of dollars uh, savings are made per year because of the um, of bats. yeah yeah so they don't have to apply so much insecticide and it's it's cutting down the pests a lot of the, a lot of this work has been done in uh, in Texas on cotton crops so they, they just try to put uh, you know, monetary value on it, but that's just one example. Sure. So you can imagine how uh, bats are kind of, you know, eating insects, but also eating insects which, like mosquitoes, that could possibly, you know, have diseases as well. So there's lots and lots of ecosystem services, like services that ecosystems 
um, provide to humans are provided by bats. Uh, it reminds me of there was a company who had a whole herds of goats that they were letting out in California and you could hire them for your grant to eat the sort of the shrubland to stop the fire spreading to it. So it's like, buy these goats, stop the wildfires. Um, <laughs> I think there was a, a, an example from the uh, Second World War where some very misinformed people, I think it was the American army, I can't remember, <laughs> they, they decided that they were going to develop bat bombs so they're going to put some little bombs on some bats and make them fly to the enemy and roost in their house and then blow stuff up. But I think they just stayed where they were. <laughs> and blew up the local American <laughs> I can't remember base. the story now, but there's a whole t- totally misguided bat bomb enterprise have that went on. Have there been other enterprises where humans have thought we could use bats against bats' natural purposes? I can't think of it. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, to finish that that thing about the bats eating insects, I think there have been people putting up bat boxes to attract bats to their fields, so agricultural fields, so that they can, you know, reduce the pests. So I put up a bat box in my garden uh-huh. during lockdown. Uh-huh. Um, Where did you put it? Well, that was going to be my question. Mm. Does it have to be really high? Does it? What do you need to put it by? Obviously, it needs to be not in a sort of regular footfall kind of area. Like what's, how do you get bats in your garden if mm. you want bats? I think a good thing to put, a good thing to do if you're um, trying to get bats into your garden is putting night flowering plants in because I think mm. you want the insects. So you need the insects to, for them to eat. So you need to have a bit of wild stuff in your garden and night scented plants that f- come out at night so that the moths go to them so that the bats have got something to eat so uh, that would be my top tip that's a great tip i love it when people champion wildflowers i'd never thought about it from the bat perspective i was thinking like you might want some kind of light to attract the moths but it makes more sense to attract them using something less invasive can eat. Yeah. yeah and um bat boxes are important but bats are quite happy using some of the the under the soffit boards of houses so yes you can put bat boxes up and they're important in some areas like plantations when you know there's not very very many holes and it's also a really good thing to do for many reasons like providing extra houses extra homes but i would say the first thing i would do is put a pond in and um, put some night flowering plants in. and if you don't have a pond you could just get like a water butt and fill it with things and that'll attract loads of insects and And mosquitoes probably Um, you mentioned diseases a little while ago. Yes. Um, I'm not going to go on to that. <laughs> uh, I might do in a bit. I've got one further question before yes. we head off into... Um, hopefully when I release this, COVID will be like completely gone. We'll have found a vaccine. It's been great yeah, and yeah. America won't have brought up the entire world's supply no, of it and yeah, we'll be fine. Um, my question is, if, if you're saying that all mammals evolved from not being nighttime dwelling creatures, mm-hmm. does that suggest that bats are perhaps one of the oldest forms of mammals that there are? that any kind of daytime dwelling mammal has evolved after bats how old are bats are bats really 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 old uh that's a really good question um thank you and we we don't quite know uh i think bats um have very uh they're very strong but they're quite they don't fossilize very well bones so they're, they're strong but they don't they're quite thin so the bones don't fossilize well so we don't have very old fossils mm-hmm. of bats so the ones which we do have are about 55 million years old okay 
Um, but there are there's some evidence that they might go back to about 75 million years, which just makes them they're kind of nested within insectivores like shrews and things like that. But they're in that group that's got um, insectivores, moles, cats, dogs, cows, whales. They're okay. in that group of, of mammals. So they're not the oldest ones because that, that would be something like um, echidnas and platypuses. But they are, you know, they, they've evolved within mammals, but they are um, probably around 70 75 million years old okay but our oldest fossil is only 55 yes. but, oh and there's another line of evidence for that that some moths can have evolved to hear bats bat echolocation calls to avoid them to avoid them so there's lots they've got, of they've got the enigma machine and they've worked out how to so uh some moths in amber around that period have been found to have these ears so whether that's because they they've evolved to counteract the moths we don't know exactly but that that's evidence that there was echolocating bats around 70 million years ago where these these noctuid moths have been found as well that's really cool so there's a whole series of things that moths do to get out of being eaten it's amazing should it's we like do an another race. episode on moths <laughs> I need to point you to some moth experts to do that. Please do. So there's some moths that can jam signals as well. So they're these tiger moths. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Like these headphones that got rained on a moment ago, they're noise cancelling. So they create the opposite wavelength of the noise going in. And if bats communicate through echolocation, surely you could throw the opposite wavelength of echo at them and they won't hear you. Yeah, that well, or confuse you. Yeah. Um, and that's what... Um, the tiger moths do they 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 send out these alarm signals which confuse bats so they they can't figure out the where the echo is coming from and there's there are some uh, moths which you know try to avoid bats completely by if they hear a bat mm -hmm. they'll fold up their wings go into stealth mode and like drop out the sky and then start flying much further down so they they just like they fly beneath the radar. Yeah, they just <laughs> stealth. And then the sun <laughs> switch of. Do, do we? How did we? Did we find this out through the same kind of sonic research that you've been doing to locate bats? Was this a? Were you discovering two things? That, you got access to a whole new world when the technology got better and more accessible and required slightly less training, as you said earlier. Not to say that it's easy to use, but because <laughs> it became easy to use, it was more easy to use. Um, yeah, you can say. You can yeah, I mean, there's lots of um, a lot of uh, researchers in Germany actually. Are, are really interested in, in bat-moth arms races and so we've been doing some experiments on, on moths and, and to understand or, or mocking a moth up in a, in, you know, with a captive colony or something sure. like that to see uh, what the bats do. So then um, the, the, some bats also go into stealth mode themselves when they hear a bat, uh, hear a moth, they figure out where the moth is and then they'll switch off their echolocation and only blast them when they're closer. So there's a, this massive arms race. And then some uh, plants can um, try to attract more bats to them to be pollinated. So there's one group of um, plants which have evolved a kind of satellite dish leaf, uh -huh. which bounces the signal from the bat into where their pollen is and their nectar. So it's a kind of co-evolutionary arms race. So it's saying, arms race. there's something down here, come get it. That's but amazing. they've made it a parabolic 
thing. Which is wonderful, isn't it? Leaf. It's kind of direct the calls. That's brilliant. That paper was called Bat Beacon, which I just thought was brilliant. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned echidnas and uh, platypuses a moment ago. Do we think there's some kind of Antipodean, monotremian, marsupialian bat that there was at some point? In the way that they've got a whole new world of different creatures that evolved purely in, on the Australia landmass, do we think there was a singular Australia interesting bat that may have gone extinct? Um, well, so bats all evolved together in this group 75 million years ago, but the structure of the continents was different. And so um, Australia and New Zealand were kind of clumped, clumped up and New Zealand was with Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And so we, what we think uh, happened was that bats spread out across the world, but then these places got separated. So in New Zealand, you see some very, very strange bats, very cool bats. But there's a couple that are extinct, but there's one uh, who crawls around the ground and has not lost the ability to fly, but is much more terrestrial and eats scorpions off the in burrows. So Ground this... bats. <laughs> there, was a, there was a guy on Twitter the other day, Andrew Barnes. Uh, he said that flying foxes evolved before foxes, so foxes should be called ground bats, which I thought was witty at the time. But it transpires that, in fact, ground bats already exist, so foxes would have to find a whole new name. <laughs> yeah, fox... Uh, Fruit bats did evolve. I think fruit fruit bats did evolve. I've got 18 million years ago for for the flying fox. Yeah, it's debated. You know, we, we don't quite know really. Don't quite know, and there's a lot of controversy around it as well. So I think I think the the trouble with bats is that they're so anatomically quite strange, mm -hmm. and so um, traditional ways of looking at taxonomies looked at the different bones and the, you know bones in the head and bones in the wing and I think bats have been quite constrained because they have to fly that you know that they've been quite constrained in what they actually have to do so the differences aren't maybe so big sure and um, I think there's lots of convergent evolution that's gone on like something looks like something else but it's got a completely different origin sure so I think it's confusing and and mammals are quite like that in general like there's been a lot of confusion about mammal taxonomy. So like whales are closely related to cows. So you would never think that, right? Mm -hmm. Never think that. But that's true when you look at the genetics. So I think that's happened a lot with bats. Like people have struggled to pin down those dates. Amazing. Ground bats. Scorpion eating ground bats. Love them. Okay, um, you've obviously been talking about this quite a lot of late. Zoonotic diseases, COVID-19 or COVID, Corona, SARS-2, which is the precursor, etc. So I don't want to dwell too much on it because people can discover it elsewhere, I guess, at the moment. But the thing that I find wanted to talk about is two things. One, why bats can tolerate so many of these diseases. Um, but also, if there's a risk now of, because humans have got COVID-19, is there a risk that British humans might pass this disease onto our native populations of bats. So I'm, I'm trying to talk about COVID from the two sides without talking about it. So <laughs> why can bats carry it? Not why do they pass it on? Because it's fairly obvious it goes through food chains, etc. And do we now risk pass it on back to different bats? Well, those are really good questions. I think bats could provide 
uh, a lot of the answers here to understanding how to tolerate viruses. Uh, so all species on this planet have their own pathogens, right? So mm -hmm. bats are no, really no different in terms of the numbers that they have. There's a lot of bats, so they have a lot of, there's lots of different pathogens. So there's no different really to rodents or whatever. Sure. So they're not really that special in terms of the numbers that they carry because everything carries something. But they do seem to be different in the way that they can tolerate um, intracellular pathogens, which means um, you know microbes that can get into and affect your cell. So like viruses. Mm -hmm. So they seem to have the same kind of tolerance, not, not tolerance for extracellular pathogens like fungal diseases as we do. So like, in fact, um, a massive fungal disease is affecting North American bats and causing their populations to crash. It's called white nose syndrome. So they don't seem to be very good at the same, exactly the same as sure. us in 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 those the wrong kinds disease, of the wrong species, or wrong fungus, the wrong species will cause a devastating population crash. But the intracellular things seem really interesting, and I think that's a really interesting area for further research uh, that we don't you don't quite understand at the moment. But it seems that bats have really amazing responses to intracellular damage so and it could be uh, so they repair dna really quickly and it could be because they put themselves under enormous amounts of metabolic stress and cause oxidative damage when they're flying so, so they have to recover quickly. they have to because you know the oxidative damage is is caused by the you know producing so much energy required for flight and it's you know, 35 times their basal metabolic rate yeah. they have to generate they're the ripping energy. apart muscle tissue constantly and, and dna causing and damage okay. so the kind of damage that they're repairing is is like their immune systems are on all the time because they're they're repairing this damage and actually that may have given them a heads up on repairing anything or, or countering anything or repairing the damage that any okay. virus or intracellular pathogen could actually uh, cause. So it could be that their immune systems are just incredible at dealing with these kinds of these type, lines of attacks. Sure. So it also has knock-on impacts for longevity as well. It might explain some of the things I did for my PhD. It's like why they live so long. And it could be it's a response to, they repair their DNA, right? System. So they, they repair their DNA, they have, they have very little cancer, you know, so it could actually be... So the old thinking was they were living f so fast that that would shorten their lifespan, but the counter-argument would be they're living so fast that their immune system has learned to cope with that and therefore their life doesn't get shortened accordingly. Yeah, I guess they're, they're producing so much energy for, this, for flight that they've had to evolve mechanisms to repair DNA. That's brilliant. And repairing DNA means that you you don't have so much damage, you can live a lo longer life, and also you can repel intracellular pathogens. So they're really good at dealing with them. So actually they may provide the, the answer for long life and happiness. So I've managed <laughs> to get through, how long have we been talking? On the record for an hour and a half now, without mentioning Dracula. And it turns out that there was always a whole load of truth <laughs> hidden in Bram Stoker's silly stories. He had just had a faster immune system because he was prone to getting more viruses. There's so many things wrong with that. I don't know where to start. <laughs> um, that's incredible. So how they pass on, have there, is there a danger of passing on it's, is it's an ongoing question and something which is concerning to the, the bat, uh, bat community 
is um, are we likely to pass this virus on to other species, not just bats, but you know other uh, other species, and so therefore creating new reservoirs. And so I think people are investigating that now in terms of um, in terms of how susceptible other species are to mm-hmm. to COVID. And I'm finding some interesting results, like the cats and civets and and things like that are really susceptible. Well, civets were responsible for SARS. Yeah, like they? so. Well, not, they were the they were the transport. They yeah. went from bats to civets to. People, well, we we're not sure, whatever. but yeah. So I think there's some concern at the moment that we step up our PPE when we're dealing with any any native any any species, and um, I think. The recommendations are at the moment to stop doing any work with bats just for now because of the risks until we understand it more but there's so much we don't know about this this pathogen you know in its early days so we'll see how it goes but there is a definite risk i just don't know how do you think if we're stopping research into bats do you think we might also convince people to stop smashing down rainforests and going to places where humans shouldn't be (laughs) i mean there's no point in just saying you can't research deep down in the rainforest where the bats are but you're more than welcome to go and raise the plant life and put some cattle there for no reason yeah i mean i think the, there there's growing evidence and we've got a, a paper coming out in the next couple of weeks on this in nature um about how land use degradation changes the communities of uh different species so that you have this community disassembly this ecological community disassembly so that you just lose key species and the ones which can survive you know, concrete mm-hmm. are ones which are much more likely to give you a disease. So mm-hmm. there are things which, you know, that that can disperse, like bats or passerine birds, ones we just saw, or rats. You know, that rodents that can survive somewhere. So everything can survive somewhere, right? Yeah. So if you if you chop down the rainforest and whatever you put in, you're filtering out that community, and you tend to filter it into these species which are live fast, die young, invest less in immunity you know, are more 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 capable of hosting these pathogens and then give you those pathogens. So we're creating unhealthy landscapes by changing them. So it'd be restoring these landscapes, putting sure. more trees in where appropriate, etc. Super. One more question before I ask you. This. I ask three questions for everybody who comes to the podcast. They're uh-huh. very easy, don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. But one question I wanted to know. You were, for five years up to recently, the chair of the Bat Conservation Trust, I believe. And a lot of what they were doing was citizen science in order to try and locate British populations uh, of the 17 British species of bat. Um, If people wanted to help with bat research now, what is the best thing people can do? I think if you want to help with bat conservation, I think you should, you know, create wild spaces and have, you know, try and rewild places like your gardens, for example, leaving things and not manicuring it to death. Mm -hmm. Um, to create insect habitats for bats. If you want to help with bat research, um, there is a, a whole uh, research and conservation program at, at Bat Conservation Trust, which is asking people to survey an area of land and then they'll give you some help and instructions about how to do that. And then you monitor populations over time and we can work out um, what is impacting these populations and understanding how they're changing. Um, we're just starting a new new program that I've been working with Bat Conservation Trust on, uh, which is uh, developing a new sensor. So it's about this big, it's about matchbox size. Mm-hmm. 
and you it's called an audio moth and you put mm. it in your garden or wherever you want or where it says to do and then you can uh, leave it out there and then collect the data and upload it to the website and then we will have all these algorithms that we've been working on over the last few years to find the calls and then identify them to species so that then you've got a little interface we know what species were in what place at what time yeah you have some nice little graphs Computers have must have changed the way this research has happened initially. Well, it's 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 actually these um, not just computers, but ecologists talking to computer scientists and uh, and statisticians to try to find new ways of identifying things remotely mm -hmm. and with you know with new uh, with engineers developing new sensors and cheap sensors that everybody can have. You know that can afford to to have so the these sensors like you know 30 40 pounds rather than ten thousand pounds you know when i was doing my um doing my phd so these are really you know opening up these these sensors open and, and this technology opens up the world of of bat research and conservation in a in a much more egalitarian way and also these new ways of going through all the recordings because you could have hours and hours mm -hmm. of it can pick out the calls of interest and then identify them and that's that means that anyone can get involved you know and I think that's really brilliant it's not just when I was doing my stuff you go out with some invariably man who got a big beard and some sandals <laughs> and he would tell you what There's that obviously a bat was. roosting <laughs> in the beard as well and he'd tell you what species it was and he'd like nod <laughs> as you saw a blur possibly <laughs> but you hear you can you can do it yourself you know and the, there are detectors that you can plug onto your phone as well and then it'll tell you what the bat is mm. it's really cool you know it's like it's a whole new world of acoustics that you're just completely oblivious of and then you go out and it's just deafening um having actively tried to avoid um both what you say in your Life Scientific that you did on BBC Ready For and you did a Rutherford and Fry a little while ago about if anybody wants to hear you going out <laughs> identifying bat noises and the technology, you talk about them in really good detail then. So I'm going to plug other people there and tell them to go hunt other people. But it's, it's fascinating listening and a great extension to this. Or indeed, uh, listen to them first and then come to this, but you wouldn't have heard me say that. Anyway, um, there are three questions that I ask everybody oh, yeah. that comes on yeah. the podcast. Okay, uh, first question, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? It would be along the beach in off the Brisbane coast because I, I, I went there last year and it was one of the most beautiful and deserted places I've ever been to and it was just absolutely breathtaking it's white beautiful sand and beautiful waves you know loads of sharks in the water but you know, amazing I'd just be like sun beating down, looking at all the mangroves and tree trees along the tree line, and then just walking down the beach for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. It'd be amazing. Are there sea bats? Is that a stupid question? We've got ground bats, we've got air bats. I don't. I don't think. I think there are coastal ones, and there are definitely species which we've got fishing hunt, bats. Hunt fish, but don't. I don't think because we've got cormorants that can dive in and sink and grab and come back out and fly away. I think you definitely have coastal ones and sea caves and then they go off and come back and hunt. I remember going to Thailand when, and we found a, um, a big cave of the fishermen bats and we had to leap from a boat into the cave. And that's why I know it's really smelly. 
<laughs> and someone dropped their camera and it was all disastrous, but yeah. Um, second question, should we colonise the moon? I think colonising the moon is a very inspirational thing to do and encourages lots of new science and new technologies which could be useful for other things. So in, I, I would be in favour, I think, but I would also like that money to be spent to better resource and protect our planet. That's, that's a brilliant answer. That's brilliant. No, very good. That 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 was the most sort of precise, refined. <laughs> most people either go, no, don't be stupid, or oh, that'll be fun, <laughs> or why would we? Uh, yeah, no, that was great. I, yeah, great. Yes, but do other things first. Yeah, I agree with that. Because it is inspirational, and all the kids would love it and everything. But I think, and it, it inspire people to get into science. But you know, I think we do have a number of issues here, like how to feed everybody, how mm -hmm. to avoid drama. You know irreversible climate change and the final question is if you could bring any species back from extinction what would quagga. it be? quagga quagga <laughs> love a quagga why a quagga because it's got such a fabulous name because mm -hmm. really <laughs> i'm pretty certain it didn't name it we we did that naming process have you seen the quagga at grants i guess you have when they, they just... i like the thylacine as well though so you've obviously seen the thylacine so one of the first interviews I did was with Tanis Davidson, who's the curator of, of Grant Zoological Museum, and they've got the jar of... Moles! Jar of moles. <laughs> but they've got the jar of thylacine flesh. Oh, wow. Which is incredible. Look, did you see that there's a recent footage of the thylacine that they've just discovered, oh, like an extra horrifying. 40 seconds? It's horrifying. It's just horrifying. It makes you so sad, that. So Quagga, sorry, we've gone into thylacines. Why, why particularly? Just because it's got an awesome name. Well, also my computer's called Quagga. <laughs> What's your computer called Quagga? All of my objects in my house are called extinct after extinct species. My my laptop's called Pipistrelle. No way! Yeah, it's awesome. yeah. <laughs> I've got like pictures of extinct things all over my house. Is that sad? Is that is that some kind of you, masochistic? You've completely got the wrong audience here. I think that's exactly what people should do. <laughs> um, in my bedroom, there's like two pictures from Captain Cook's expedition that I got from some kind of random shop in in like North Yorkshire, you know, some random thing. And uh, one's about to beat up some walruses with guns. And then the other one is s some of them randomly trying to beat up some penguins. That is a little bit sick. No, I mean, sick? I get like- Do you think it's sick? So I- It's like an object lesson to what not to do, I think I would like to say. I think there are certain things one should maybe put away when guests come round. <laughs> Do you, do you know um, After Man by um, Dougal Dixon? No. It's a future evolution set, but 360 million years. No, I have, I have heard of this. And I think Adam Rutherford was talking about this the other possibly, day. Possibly. But it's a hypothesisation, a hypothesis of where animals could go. And I got 12 of these prints <gasps> taken out of the book and Amazing. framed in my bathroom. No way. Some of them are terrifying. Oh, is this the, there's one bat which has got like a, a yeah. face like a flower. Yeah. Yeah, so it's to attract the, the, it's amazing. And there's some naked roll mats, roll mats. Roll mats, <laughs> mole rats. Naked mole rats. Yeah, that, there's... Um, that, like a big dune kind of worm Yeah, thing. giant sort of stretched skin desert dwelling. Amazing. Like, they're incredible pictures. Like, a, there's a lemur-like thing that has a tail that looks like a snake to, to mimic the... I put those away when <laughs> people come around. Yeah, but if they're in the bathroom, I mean, I can I get can I use your toilet? No. 
I think you, that's you good, can... though, isn't it? Like Curiosities. Yeah. Stops people dwelling too long in there, that's for sure. <laughs> um, Kate, thank you so very much. <laughs> um, if people want to know more about you, you're on Twitter. Yes. Prof Kate Jones. Uh, any other way people might want to see what you're discovering? Um... Other than doing a course at UCL <laughs> on evolutionary biology. <laughs> Um, my Google Scholar page has got latest publications. I'm on several podcasts, and if you Google me, I think you'll probably just It'll come up. Come up. Super, wonderful. Anything else you want to add about bats? Bats are awesome and endlessly fascinating. That's it. That's all the news on bats. A huge thank you to Kate. Go follow her on Twitter now. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts now. And I'm off now to get our next episode ready. So thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Oh,